Hello, I'm Deborah Rattall, and welcome to the Community HealthCast. The conversation today is about harvesting your garden bounty and what to do with it and how to do it. Whether you've planted a garden this year for the first time or the 51st time, you have been busy. Weeding, watering, watching, and wondering. When is the right time to pick all that good stuff I've been working so hard on? How can I get the most use out of everything? And what do I do if I have more than I can use? Depending on what you planted and where you are, now is the time you're beginning to enjoy the success of your labors. Whether your garden is in a pot or on a plot, it is maturing, and some things have already gone from the garden to your plate. Joining me for this garden harvesting conversation is our very own health board coordinator and podcast editor, Elizabeth Bailey. Elizabeth, how does your garden grow? Hey, Deb. You know, my garden has been growing great this year, but the deer have been loving it a little too much. I'm still going to get a good harvest, though. I know this is a big topic, so let's just break this down in manageable chunks and start with some general harvesting tips, then maybe move on to some garden troubleshooting for success, and then what to do with the bounty. How does that sound? Sounds perfect. Let's do it. Okay, let's start with harvesting. Now, I was thinking a lot about this, and I think one of the things that we find is really successful and important in our garden is to check the garden daily and adjust your expectations as you go. So it's a really good practice to see what's always going on in your garden. Maybe have a basket with you to see what's ready to pick. I mean, you don't want to pick too soon or it won't be ripe, and you don't want to pick too late or it might be too ripe. So a walkabout on a daily basis will let you sort of keep an eye on how things are going. What do you think of that? I think you're right. And you know what? I did my walkabout a couple hours ago and I found all kinds of zucchini that I didn't even notice before. And I thought, boy, they're going to be a little too big even tomorrow because they're growing so quickly right now. You know, sometimes it helps to get down and look at it from different angles. There's all kinds of stuff that hides under leaves that is just ready to go. You know, when you talk about looking around your garden and things look different, it's not going to look like in the grocery store. And maybe some of the newer gardeners out there are starting to figure that out now. That's true. You know, Deb, some things like cherry tomatoes are pretty solid, pretty solid. But some things like squash, they can come out looking pretty funny and not like what you see. (laughs) I think it's important to adjust our expectations and keep in mind that if something has a small blemish, it's still probably going to taste delicious. Yeah, it's going to taste a lot better than that perfect looking one that you get at the grocery store because it's fresh and it's full of garden goodness. Exactly. And along that topic of the giant zucchini, I mean, bigger doesn't always mean better, especially in the garden. Most things are at their prime when they're little and tender. I think it's a lot better to pick it a little earlier when it comes to a bean or peas rather than wait until they get what we say as kind of a woody flavor to them. So you'll have to experiment in your garden. You need to pick one or two things and give a little taste test on the fly and see, does this taste like I think it should taste? Now, when it comes to picking, the third thing I have on my list is to be gentle with your harvest. What are your thoughts on that? I think a lot of things, you just want to give them a little twist, just you know, sort of twist them off instead of pulling them and yanking the whole plant, right? Because when I know when I was a new gardener, I had some plants, I was so excited to see the perfect tomato, and I grabbed it and I yanked it toward me, whole dang plant came out of the ground. So I've learned over the years that you want to just sort of gently take the fruit or take the vegetable and take the stem and then twist them apart. And if it just won't come when you twist it, 
it might mean it's not ready. Harvesting is a great way to involve your kids in the garden. I mean, most of them are going to be so pumped that they're finally allowed to pick something off those plants. <laughs> they just don't touch those until they're ready. Start when they're young. Tell them that you're going to let them help. Make it a big deal that they're allowed to help. Oh, it's such a privilege. <laughs> now, here's something that you're going to be sensitive about because I know you've already mentioned your troubles in your garden. So the other thing that you do when you do your walkabout is you look for signs of trouble. You look for signs of trouble like yellowing leaves or rotting fruit. It's a good idea to take those things off your plants so your plant doesn't spend its energy trying to repair something that's already faulty. And there's no point in that. And cleaning it up keeps disease out of your garden, keeps rot out of your garden, which allows you to have a longer season. Now, I know a lot of people who say the only way to keep deer out of your garden is an eight-foot fence, or some people even say an eight-foot electrified fence. And I know people who do that. I live right in town, so I, I'm not going to have an electrified fence to shock all the little kids in the neighborhood. But there are a few things that I find help. Deer really hate garlic. They really hate garlic, and I really love garlic, and I grow a lot of garlic. One of the things I did this year that really helped was when I cut my scapes, because you cut your scapes in order to make the bulb grow bigger. I turned some of them into pesto, but some of them, you know, they're these little curly things from the top of the plant. I just hung them on my other plants, and the deer left those plants alone. And then I took some of the bulbs that I had already harvested, and I crushed them up into some olive oil made some garlic oil, then I mix that with water and I spray that on my plants. And they just, they really hate garlic. If they smell that, they'll turn around. So that helps a bit. That's really interesting. Huh. Yeah, there's all kinds of pests in the garden. And I know that this year in particular, a lot of people, just like last year, are having trouble with those Japanese beetles. And they love to eat all kinds of things in your garden. And the one thing that we were fighting, we don't have, knock on wood, too many of those out here. But we keep a good eye out for those potato beetles. They're busy little suckers and they eat all those leaves. And they won't necessarily kill the potatoes, but they do make a mess of what's going on. So that's one of the things we do in our garden walkabout is we check out for those critters or check out for the larvae. And they meet their demise under the shoe of the gardener. <laughs> All right. So there's lots of pests. There's lots of strategies. Now let's get down to it when it comes to the food itself. A little known fact about you, Elizabeth, that our listeners may not know, is that you have been a food writer for many years and have quite a lot of experience talking about writing about how to preserve, how to use a lot of this garden bounty. Is it safe to say that this is kind of your thing? You know, Deb, it really is. It's one of my passions for sure. I just love food to begin with. And we have such wonderful local food here in Nova Scotia. I love being able to grow it and cook it and do all kinds of things with it, including preserve it because we have so much right now. And we certainly want to enjoy some of it in February when it's dark and gray and awful out. A little bite of summer. Now, I really love herbs a lot. I have quite a few of them in my garden. And of course, this time of year, there's a ton of basil. If anybody's grown any basil, you should have a ton of it. I mean, my theory is that's why the Italians invented pestos, because they had too much basil this time of year. What are we going to do with it? What other things can you do with herbs? I've noticed a lot of people talk about drying herbs and they say, oh, I'm going to get a dehydrator so I can dry my herbs. For most herbs, you don't need that. Leafy, delicate herbs, 
you can put just in a paper bag. I did this with time the other day. I have a ton of time. And I just pulled the sprigs and put the whole sprigs in a paper bag and sealed it loosely, left it on the counter for a week, came back. They were dried perfectly. And then I took the little leaves and took them off of the branches and put them in a jar. Now, the one thing that I think is important if you're drying herbs is to dry them in as big of pieces as you can, like the whole leaf or as big of pieces as you can manage, and then crumble them up right before you use them and you'll get a better flavor that way. A little known fact about cilantro. So we grow cilantro and anybody who's grown cilantro in their garden know it's one of those pesky herbs that go to seed really quickly. And if you leave the pods alone and you leave the cilantro alone and you allow it to make the little seed pods in it, then you have coriander and you can harvest those little seeds and they taste completely different than cilantro. Little known fact. Well, I didn't know it for a while until I learned it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, we did talk a little bit about tomatoes. There's infinite things to do with tomatoes. I mean, you can dry them, you can process them, you can freeze them, you can make salsa, whatever, the sky's the limit. And I know there's a lot of resources online for that. Speaking of resources, if you're listening to this podcast and you want to know more about how to can or dry or even just for harvesting your vegetables, then what we cover, I really encourage you to look at information provided by a university extension. University extension programs have the best and most well-researched information, and it's usually the highest quality. So that's my tip to you. Because we're talking about safety here too. It's really important when you're putting food up, if you're canning, whatever you're doing, to make sure that you do it in the safest way. I'm a big fan of making salsa and I use pretty much everything out of my garden to do it. Onions, all different kinds of peppers, the tomatoes. The only thing I don't use out of my garden is the olive oil and tomato paste. And I know there are people that make tomato paste. Do you make tomato paste? No, honestly, that's too much work. We talked about this earlier. I know you're a big fan of canning and you're an experienced canner. I have canned, but usually I prefer to preserve things by dehydrating them or freezing. And tomatoes are one of the things I really like to dehydrate. I slice up big tomatoes or I just slice cherry tomatoes in half and put them face down on dehydrator racks and dry them until they're dry but flexible. Kind of like a veggie leather? Yeah, pretty much like that. And then I put them all in a freezer safe bag and suck the air out of it with a straw and put that in the freezer, which is probably overkill. But you can get an awful lot of tomatoes into a small space if you dehydrate them like that. And then I can chop them up and throw them in soups and stocks and sauces and casseroles all year long. Hmm. I mean, timing is everything. We've touched a little bit on that. Timing is everything with the garden. Whether you pick too soon, you pick too late, finding that happy meter. And with corn in particular, it really starts to lose its sweetness and its flavor the instant you pull that corn off the corn stalk. And the greatest advantage to growing your own corn is that you can do it at the very last minute. The traditional rule is to get a pot of water boiling to cook the corn and then go out and pick it. Yeah, that's right. Because those the sugars start converting to starch the very second it's picked. I figured you'd know like the sciencey stuff about it. (laughs) (laughs) If you have a cool, dry place in your house, that's the best. And you mentioned about rot. The really important thing to know is that if you've got one bad, you know, one bad apple spoils the barrel. If you've got one bad piece of produce and it's touching 
other pieces, that rot will spread. So you either have to keep them separate so that they're not touching or just be really, really careful. There's not even a speck of them before you store them together. Mm -hmm. Those are the two really big things. Yeah, it's important to keep an eye on things. Another thing that if you grow parsley in your garden, parsley, even if it's covered with snow, survives. That's right. You know, when we were talking earlier about preserving your food for winter, I was thinking, you know, one of the things I really like to do is garden for things I'm going to eat at the holidays. Mm. And I like to preserve fruits for desserts that I make at the holidays. But one of my favorite things to do is grow parsley that I use for my family's Swedish meatball recipe that we make for Christmas Eve dinner. But I found that if I cover it up, I can keep the parsley in my garden going until Christmas Eve and go pick it fresh to put in the meatballs, which is amazing. And it's so much better. Parsley is one of those herbs that I don't recommend drying because it just, it doesn't taste very good. It loses a lot of its flavor. Parsley and cilantro just don't dry well. And even basil. Like I would rather take basil and make it into like a blurred, I've done this past blurred it up with olive oil and dried it flat, like dried it in flattened bags. And then you can just bust off pieces and put it into a sauce or whatever you're making. I mean, it's sometimes hard to make it into a pesto because it wants to turn black at that point. It doesn't look good, but it still tastes good. Mm-hmm. You're a big fan, Elizabeth, of freezing things. That's right. And you and I, I know, think differently about how to do that. And it yeah. all comes down to blanching. It does come down to blanching. <laughs> There are two camps when it comes to blanching. Do it or not. And let's just table that part of the conversation (laughs) for another day. But what I do want to talk about when regards to freezing is the space. Our freezers are all stuffed full of stuff most of the time. So the ideas that you had about freezing things in ice cube trays or even in muffin tins and then taking them out and putting them in a bag, that's really great. It's a good space saver. And the other thing that I like to recommend people do in order to save space is to freeze in freezer bags and then to put them in freezer bags and then suck the air out with a straw so that there's as little air in there as possible and then get them all sealed up and nice with hardly any air in there and then stack them up horizontally and put like a book or a sheet of cardboard in between each bag in the freezer so that it freezes flat and straight and nice. And once you've done that, then you can move them horizontally and stack them up like books, right? And it takes up much less space. It's like the most efficient way to stack everything into your freezer. Even if you only have that little freezer on top of your fridge, you can get a fair amount of stuff in there. You'd be surprised. And the other thing in terms of the freezing bit that I want to add that you reminded me of the other day, write down what it is. Sometimes when it's frozen, it's not always recognizable. Yep. Labeling is very important. And something else that I learned the hard way is it's really, if you're using those freezer bags with a write-on label in the front, which I like to do, write on them first. Write on them before you put the food in. Oh, yeah. And make sure you put the date that you're putting it in the freezer. That's one of those details that I always think I'm going to remember, but I don't, you know. I'm 48. I got a mind like a steel sieve. (laughs) Well, we're all out there just doing the best we can. Before we go today, I just, earlier when we were talking about freezing, I just want to make sure everybody knows it's Deborah who doesn't blanch. I'm (laughs) the answer. Putting that out there. 
Not I bl- any judgments. I blanch some things. I blanch. We blanched our soybeans. Uh huh. And they turned out really well. Let's talk about garlic. I love garlic, and it's one of the best ways to save money because buying garlic is expensive, and it's Can not be. hard to grow. Easy. And Easy the deer grow. hate it just the as much as I hate it. them. So there you go. Yes. Garlic is like magic. It comes up. You can eat the scapes, which is the flower blossom, as you mentioned, about getting those suckers cut off. You can take the scapes and cook them. You can make pesto out of them. You can use them as a deer deterrent, apparently. That's a genius idea, actually. There's nothing like your own garlic. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. And I know there are people I have heard in this world that do not like garlic. Do you know uh, any? Well, I, you know, I might, but I don't speak to them. <laughs> well, Elizabeth, it's always fun to talk to you. And it's always great to share information about gardening. We can't possibly cover all the information about this topic. No, but I hope we've given people out there a little inspiration to get out there, see how their garden's doing, and go ahead and start drying or preserving or canning or freezing or whatever you want to do. Or just eat it. <laughs> just just eat it. There's so much to know and so many places to find information. I'm going to put a few of my favorite resources on our Facebook page, Queen's Community Health Board. So just have a look there and I'll put some of those university extensions I was talking about and other sources for great information about your garden harvest and what to do with it. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth. You're listening to the Community HealthCast, and we welcome you to join us again and be part of our conversation. Thanks for a great chat, Deb. (laughs) (laughs) Next week on the Community HealthCast, join host Deb Rattle and me, Elizabeth Bailey, as we talk with members of the community about accessibility issues in Queens County. What barriers to accessibility present challenges for residents of our county, and what can we do to change them? This episode is the first in a two-part series on this topic. Tune in and join the conversation.